we are experiencing a paradigm shift. A fundamental change in the way we usually do things. We are intentionally choosing to see the silver lining. Opportunity arises. We can shine a light on the things that weren't working well, on those things that weren't really working at all. We can regroup, reevaluate, and re-engineer. It's time to explore new patterns and paradigms. Those that inspire us to rise above the chaos and explore how the conditions of today can take us to a better tomorrow. Patterns and Paradigms, the Pattern Podcast, from Hudson Valley Pattern for Progress. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 5, Land Use and the Climate for Change, with your host, Pattern President and CEO, Jonathan Drapkin. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Patterns and Paradigms. We hope you enjoyed last week's with Mary Stewart Masterson. Today, we will be joined by the CEO of the Open Space Institute, Kim Elliman, for a wide-ranging discussion on land use, preservation, climate change, and how this all might impact the Hudson Valley. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast on Apple or wherever else you go for finding your podcast. And if you enjoy it, why not share the episode and ask a friend to download it wherever they find their favorite shows. So bubble or trend? Okay, if I said to you, Reddit, GameStop, Robinhood, hedge funds, would you know what I was talking about? So for this tiny little moment in time, Wall Street's life was completely disrupted. Now it was bound to happen sooner or later, but is it a trend or is it a bubble? There's no question that there's going to be far-reaching implications of what happened in Wall Street last week. Wall Street does not like uncertainty, and this was uncertainty on steroids. And, you know, the, there are those that are saying that the hedge funds clearly got their comeuppance here, even if it was for a day or two, until all the regulators stepped in and said, no, time out, can't really be doing this. But is it a bubble or is it a trend? Now, I want to also go back to one of my favorite topics, which is General Motors will be phasing out all cars and trucks using gas by 2035. If this actually comes to pass, which is in 15 years, it will totally disrupt the car industry. So as to whether this is a bubble or trend, let's see what happens next. But before I introduce our guest, let me ask my partner at Pattern, what's up, Joe? What are we looking at this week? Well, I think we may want to take a look at the changing nature of work, and specifically remote work. And so, you know, we've got internet companies like Amazon, Netflix, Wayfair, and to some degree, telemedicine. They're all disruptors in our economy. The delivery of goods and services has all been put on, as you said before, steroids. The efficiency and the sheer scale of things have drastically been improving those systems, right? So 
if you look at a, a, a much wider array of goods and services, and how are they delivered? Well, they're l- delivered right into your home now. It's drastically altered the way many of us operate on a daily basis in respective to all of our communities going out, going in. Everything and anything can be shipped to your home from clothes and apparel to laundry soap and ironing boards and from dog biscuits to a snow shovel. If you can box it, they can ship it. And not just from the large internet companies like Amazon and Wayfair. Local grocery stores have established new delivery systems akin to ordering a pizza. Call the local grocer, and in a few hours, your bananas and almond milk are at your doorstep. The problem is, so are the chips, ice cream, and cookies. (laughs) Online grocery store deliveries has jumped somewhere around 90% since last year, and food delivery has jumped over 50%. So why am I talking about all this? Well, it all has to do with services being delivered at home, things being delivered to you at home, and how what's the impact on working from home? Well, it's not all f- good for all professions, or simply put, it's not for all professions. Many people cannot do their work from home, but for those who can, there are some great benefits. No commute, no dry cleaning. And more free time. Well, maybe not more free time. I believe most people are now working longer hours and have turned the commute into more productive office time, while others have learned to call it a day after eight hours or so. It's a balancing act. There's also the issue of space and separation. If your home is not set up for working, it can be very, very stressful. Some people are forced to work at a kitchen table or a corner in their living room, while others may have converted an entire bedroom into an office. Some employers recognize the setup cost for home office and offered stipends for furniture and equipment. There are sacrifices either way, and some are more difficult than others. There's also the issue of remote learning and its impact on remote work. The kids are likely home, while a parent or the parents are trying to get their work done at the same time, sharing broadband, sharing screens, sharing keyboards. Working from home is not the panacea that some may think it is. It's a tough balance, and a boundary really does need to be established. Some people shut the door at their home office at the end of the day and don't go back until the next morning. Some people are actually getting into their cars every morning. They drive around in circles for 20 minutes, get a coffee, return home, and then start their day. At least it resembles a normal business day of the past. Other consequences of working from home? For those who are able to keep an eight-hour day and were able to convert their commute time to home projects, well, this has resulted in a whole new world of weeknight and weekend warriors storming the aisles at Lowe's and Home Depot. Also, there should be far less sick time used, right? You're masking up, you're staying at home, nobody's getting colds or the flu or other ailments. And if somebody does get a cold or a flu, you got to say, hey, wait a minute, where have you been? Are you wearing your mask? It also doesn't matter where you're 
home is in terms of work from home. I have some friends who are working, let's say, in a much warmer climate and even on a sandy beach down south. This quickly gets to the point of disparities, though, in this work-from-home model, specifically in terms of wealth. The professions associated with higher wages will do much better than others who are working in fields of hospitality, retail, and other service sector jobs, including warehouse distribution, trucking, and manufacturing, where location does matter because you need to be there to do the job. Other issues include the loss of corporate culture, personal relationships, and in-person water cooler chats. No more talking about the big game, staying around the cooler. Onboarding for new staff is also very difficult. For new graduates fresh out of school, it's difficult to feel like you're one of the team if you've never really actually met the team in person. Social interaction is part of all of us as human beings. It's important we do not lose focus on that. That's what's going on with remote work. Joe, I'm going to give you the last word. That was extremely well said. Uh, listeners, if you have anything to add, please send it to us at Hudson Valley Pattern for Progress slash podcast. Joe, thanks for being with us as always. You're very welcome. Let me introduce our guest, Kim Elliman the CEO of one of the largest land conservation entities in the United States, headquartered here in New York City, Open Space Institute, or OSI, does a great deal of work throughout New York State, including the Hudson Valley. Kim has been with OSI since 1992, though he probably doesn't want me to say that, and has been a wonderful colleague on all things land use. Hi, Kim, and welcome to Patterns and Paradigms. Um, as I ask all my guests, how are you doing? And, you know, how has the pandemic been? Um, thanks, Jonathan. It's it's always great to talk to you, and it's great to talk to you and have it recorded for a change. Um, so you have to stay, stay in the straight and narrow. Um, uh, and you can't misquote me when this is all over. Um, <laughs> You're recording this in the middle of a snowstorm, and it's sort of it's it almost feels normal to be home in the middle of a snowstorm um, because one wouldn't go out anyway. Uh, but I, I must say, Zoom life, working from home life, remote work, um, and maybe it reflects my age, but I just I'm not used to it, and um, I miss uh, the conviviality and congeniality of having colleagues in an office. Well, open, OSI has how many employees? So we have about um, 60 employees. Um, we have um, uh, eight office, uh, 10 offices in eight states. Um, but our home is New York, and our home office is in New York City, where uh, about half of the employees um, on a normal year uh, would be working. But um, we have been virtual since early March. Ah, okay. All right, then. Um, so let's start with an explanation of, you know, I know OSI, but maybe not all of our listeners do. So maybe you can explain the organization, its mission, and uh, tell us a bit about it. Okay. So um, OSI, um, the Open Space Institute, was founded 40-something years ago, um, getting close to 50. The exact incorporation date remains a subject of active debate, but I think given that our 50th is going to be soon, 
we'll fudge it so we can celebrate our 50th over multiple years, right? If you if I call you during my our 50th anniversary, Jonathan, you know I'm calling you for money. Uh, yes. Um, um, so OSI is a land conservation organization, a land trust, um, and basically, we what we say is um, we protect land, we buy land for people, for wildlife, forever. Um, most of our land is uh, converted either to parks or working landscapes, and I can tell you more about either of those things. Well, but, we, and if I understand, just to give our listeners some perspective, the numbers are somewhat staggering. I mean, into the millions of acres and 60 or so new parks or preserves, is, are those yes, the right so, numbers? Those are the right numbers. God, can you believe it? Um, 2.3 million acres. Um, in So we only work in the Eastern US. And over, we started working just in the Hudson Valley. Um, and then we started expanding a little bit, um, depending upon the amount and sources of funding we got. And um, given some of our work in, in New York, some foundations approached us um, and asked us to work in the Northern Forest, which run from Maine to New York. And we had a relatively successful program doing that. So we kept moving both north and south. So we've done projects in Canada. We've done projects all the way down in Florida. But principally, we're looking at um, the corridor that runs along the Appalachians, um, okay. mostly on the eastern side of the Appalachians. Um, but New York is our home state. We've done most of our work in New York. We do about 100 transactions a year. And um, our last... 2020 was a bit of an anomaly. We can get to that. But um, last couple of years, we've been doing about 100 transactions a year. So that's two two a week. Um, and our budget has been about $100 million a year. So let's, I think we'll, we'll jump. Look, we've been having these conversations for a while. So we'll jump around a bit. Um, in the last year, with the advent of COVID, with uh, uh, the economic disruption with uh, the the social justice has it caused you to reflect on the mission of OSI at all? It has, and in the last year, in the last two years, we have become more conscious of who we protect land and nature for. Um, you know. Fundamentally, uh, in some time ago, we would say we protect land for nature and for people, for wildlife, right? And we've had to parse that both in terms of what kind of nature and for um, which people. And so that there's basically, as, as you said, I mean, there are basically four crises in our society in the last year, right? There's climate, there's race, there's the economy, and of course, there's the pandemic. Um, and the four, as Biden has been made very clear in the first 10 days or 11 days of his administration, the four are linked. Um, that, you know, the economy and the pandemic is affecting people of color and people who live in under-resourced communities much more severely than um, other communities. Um, and Climate also affects certain communities, low-lying communities, worse and and along watercourses, um, worse than others. So we've had to look 
we've had to define the issues that we want to try to address and parse those issues uh, with a bit more thought. And the one thing I will say about the first year of COVID, though I hope this doesn't continue, is it has given us time to reflect upon um, how we think about our work and are the goals and values that um, are embedded in our work. So yes, we have thought about it and I'll shut so up. No, 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 um, not at all. <laughs> our conversations are generally uh, pretty free and open. So uh, there was something you said just before we started to record, which was about the connectivity of where open space is and where people are. And then how do we bridge that in a way that makes people comfortable? So, yes, you know, we're the Open Space Institute. We protect open space. Open space is found in rural America. Um, and there's a certain culture and society in rural America. Um, but many of the users of parks and open space come from urban America. And again, there's a culture and there's a conversation um, around that. And so we have increasingly focused on trying to find language that bridges those two cultures and those communities. Now, it's not, we're not I'm not pretending we're inventing something or that this is impossible or that we are unique in addressing this, but I always remind our staff, which typically is, tends younger and um, more urban and diverse, that they can't just be speaking to each other. They have to be speaking to an older generation and they have to be speaking to uh, the people where we work. I think the social license for an organization like the Open Space Institute is that we have to be attentive to and respond to the communities in which we work, i.e. rural America, and for and who use the parks that we create. And that's an interesting piece. There's been a lot of work um, done about who uses parks, um, and both on a national level and a state level. And basically, it's funny that the New York tracks the national numbers. Fundamentally, 70% of the users of a park say Minnewaska State Park or Fonstock State Park or the Adirondacks or Catskills, I mean, you name a park, 70% live within 30 miles of that park. And they typically use it during the weekdays. The 30% that come from outside that radius tend to come um, on weekends, which makes sense, right? It's day use park, they come up for the day. But there's a lot of diversity in that one third that comes up principally on the weekends. Um, and so when you think about how you build out a park, how do, you, how do you design the amenities that people want in a park when you may be talking about very diverse user groups? So actually, we're, we're, OSI has embarked on a study with the um, outdoor recreation community um, in conjunction with what New York State Department of Environmental Conservation, DEC, and the Office of Parks and Recreation, OPR, the two agencies that manage parklands in New York State. We are trying to look at the demographics and project out the future use of New York State's parks. And it's been a fascinating exercise. If I could go on one second. Sure. Basically, somewhat 
oversimplified, we think of parks in four different types. They're urban parks, you know, your community parks or your central parks or whatever. Um, that really is passive recreation. People walk or they bike, but, you know, there's not that much structured recreation. That's more suburban parks where people go to play golf. They go to to baseball and soccer and whatever, right? They're, they're playing fields and their times and the land is really committed to organized sports. So those are the first two types. The third type is really a day use kind of park. And think of Harriman State Park or Bear Mountain or Fonstock or even Minnewaska, right? I mean, people go there and they're, they're day users, right? Um, but they tend not to, the facilities tend not to have a whole lot of overnight accommodations and people don't really think of it that way. Then you have the Catskills of the Adirondacks where people do go and spend two or three days at a time sure. and they're camping. They may be car camping or they may have a and b but they're there for effectively the same thing. They're there to spend several days in, in the wilds. And those parks are really managed as much for their biological or ecological integrity, read biodiversity, as they are for human recreation. The first three types are really being managed for human use. And the last is more nature-based. So I've been doing this stuff for, you know, close to 40 years or maybe even longer if you really push me. And the difference I've seen over the four decades is in the 70s and 80s, the environmental movement, particularly the land conservation movement, really pushed for wilderness type parks where people were visitors, but it was really being managed for nature. And you got into a lot of fights. I mean, there were a lot of fights in the Adirondacks and the Catskills, and and you were a veteran of some of those. Um, though you're on the wrong side, um, and and uh, you know, increasingly, we have been managing land and buying land and building facilities for people. So the pendulum has swung. Our our parks are and the work of OSI is much less about adding land. To wilderness areas and is much more about adding land and basically access to the parks, the day use parks, the Hudson Valley parks. Mm-hmm. So I can't let that that little slip go that I'm on the wrong side. I think as an organization, though, we always are educated as to both sides. Our job really is to try to be a centrist organization in a world that consistently is trying to push us to one side or the other, and it just keeps getting worse. Um, The middle is a hard place to be. So Pattern was founded in 1965 for trying to find balance land use. And Yes, I do advocate for development, but um, I am also personally and the organization very respectful of parkland. Um, It is part of what makes the Hudson Valley great. We do not minimize that. So that was just for the benefit of my organization that I, I, uh, while we certainly have had many discussions where we take sides, in which case that's how we learn. And that's old school. You know, I I wish there was more of that where you could debate with each other and then go have a beer. 
um, those are days are, are, are numbered and there's just not a lot of that, but that's how you learn is when you take a side and you can debate with someone. What was your favorite parks project? Um, well, in New York state, okay. my absolute favorite, um, was Sterling Forest, um, because OSI along with, uh, the Trust for Public Land was a joint project working first with the Cuomo administration, but principally with the Pataki administration created the largest, made the largest investment in New York state in a hundred years in its park system. It was a hundred million dollar transaction very complicated. It took us three years to do, another three years to fund. So it was a big chunk of my relatively um, still young life. And, um, uh, you know, we created a park out of scratch. The Ge other favorite one I have. Wait, Kim, geographically in the Hudson Valley, right? Just for the sake of- Everything I'm telling you, but, um, but um, Stilling Forest is, is on the edge of New York and New Jersey. Right. Okay. Um, and it extends north um, through the Hudson Highlands and is basically forms the backside now of Harriman State Park. And so. and as a favorite project, I realize that is a, a very broad question, but what made it interesting to you? What was it the challenge? Was it community pushback? What what sort of made it interesting? Um you know, I'm, a, I'm sort of a transaction junkie, um, and that's why OSI does so many deals. Uh, it was an enormously complicated transaction because there were multiple land uses. We were dealing with two different states and the federal government, um, three different towns, and um, two different counties. So that creates complexity. Um, sure does. And, you know, there are also inholdings. Right, International Paper had an inholding, NYU had an inholding, um, various other users. There was water needs. There was the Appalachian Trail Corridor. So there were New Jersey drew five percent of its water out of out of the watershed. Um, uh, the Appalachian Trail wound its way through about ten or twelve miles of Sterling Forest. So you had lots of interests that you had to try to accommodate, and then. The company we were buying it from was in bankruptcy. So you had to deal with the bankruptcy um, judge and uh, lawyers. So it, it, it had, but having said all that, uh, it's a wonderful addition uh, in an important ecology. Another, uh, I, I would throw out two more. I've been at this too long to choose, have just one favorite child. They're all, I love Go them. for it. I, Go for um, it. Another I loved is uh, Scunamunk State Park, uh, which, as you know, is is um, in New Windsor and Cornwall, New York. Okay. Okay. It is immediately to the west of 87 um, from Storm King Art Center, and the Storm King Art Center was started by the Ogden Stern family, mm -hmm. and they also own Scunamonk Mountain. Um, and at some point in the 1990s, it's hard to believe that, but you were all but giving away rural real estate. Um, this is before the the run-up in real estate values at the end of the 90s that ran for about 10 years until the real estate bubble. So we bought it relatively inexpensively. Um, we convinced the Pataki administration to buy it from us. But again, it was a creation, just like Sterling Forest, of a brand new park. And some of the parks that we've 
worked on have been supplements, complements, inholdings um, to existing parklands. But these were two brand new parks. Um, and there's just some satisfaction there. And then the 20 years or 25 years since we bought Scunamonk, we've done a um, continued to buy land. And now there's just this web of trails, um, linear parks, which we'll talk about, I hope, at some point. Sure. Um, and just more and more use of, of Scunamonk. So that's happy. The third thing, and then I will pause. Um, we have, in New Paltz, we have over 30 years. Let me stop for a second. Land conservation is a long haul um, enterprise. I mean, everything I'm talking about tends to take decades. Um, so we've been working in New Paltz for 35 years in Minnewaska. We've basically doubled the size of Minnewaska State Park. But at some point, I was standing on the top of Scunamonk, I mean, of, of um, Minnewaska, and actually at Mohonk Mountain House, so it was Mohonk, not Minnewaska, looking down, and we protected a lot of land to the south of Mohonk. But Peter Beanstalk, who I think at one point was on your board, is still on our board, yep. said, you know, Kim, you've done a great job protecting the ridge. You haven't done much about the valley. And that was a real pivot for me because it's great to be, I mean, more people look at the ridge than look down at the valley, but you also want a valley that you look across and is green, right? I mean, somehow the view of the, the ridge is spoiled if you have a bunch of high rises. Now, New Paltz would never permit high rises, but you get the conceptual idea. So we started working on um, the land west of the Wallkill River. So over time, OSI bought hundreds of acres of farmland, and we're basically actually thousands of acres of farmland, about 3,000 acres. And we are um, basically subsidizing the continuation of farming on much of that land. But we thought that, again, the social license wasn't just to have farmers continue to farm, as benighted as that might be. It was also to provide some public access. So we constructed something with some help of the foundations, particularly the Butler Conservation Fund, um, that we called River to Ridge. And it goes from the west side of New Paltz and the bridge over the, the Wallkill River all the way up in, you can either go up to Mohunk or up to Minnewaska. So a six mile trail that runs from um, the town of New Paltz to the state park. And that then leads to about 110 miles of carriage trails. But it was really fun and, and it's only been active about two and a half years. The first year there was about 100,000 users. This year there's gonna be closer to a quarter million. Now, some of that is, is COVID and people wanna be outdoors, which is a topic we should talk about. But some of it is just people are finding it, recognizing and using it. And that's incredibly satisfying. So we have this trail winding along the edge of of farmlands, uh, but forests, and it winds up gradually and sometimes steeply until um, you get to the edge of, of the ridge. So river to ridge, uh, there's a loop. If you want to do that, there's a one, one, one way you could bike it, you can ride it on horses, you can walk it. Anyway, it's great. It's wonderful. You know, it, it, it's funny because yes, um, I care deeply as does pattern about appropriate development 
and job creation in the Hudson Valley. And certainly, you know, our population has been rather stagnant and we need to attract new people. Um, we, until recently, we had an office in the city of Newburgh and I live in Sullivan County. And on my ride up 84, um, I, you know, knew the landscape really well. During COVID, one of the warehouse distribution plants, which in and of itself is not a bad project, but it abuts Route 84. It's a million square feet. And it gave me great pause to see that what was traditionally green was now this giant warehouse. And I only look at it and say there wasn't some, not to oppose the warehouse, but to say there wasn't some way to berm it, to be able to set it back, to do something, because part of the fun of driving up Route 84 is that most of it, not all of it, but most of it is green. Um, and I think that in the, you know, certainly we found out when people were allowed to come out from the lockdown. Where did they go? And the Hudson Valley was green space, open space. And I'm trying to tell people if there's one thing that I know for certain is going to happen this spring and summer, is if you thought a lot of people tried to access the parks and open space in the Hudson Valley last year, you ain't seen nothing yet. I totally agree. You know, uh, 2016 was the centennial of the National Park Service. And the National Park Service never had more visitors than in 2016. Ditto in New York State Park System. Um, you know, the two are correlated, as I said before. Um, I mean, people are people, and if they want to use national parks, New York State has national quality parks. They're going to use New York State Parks, too. Um, but then there was sort of a flattening. I mean, it didn't go down. And what you saw in 2020 was another significant increase, I mean, double-digit increase of where we'd been in 2016. So to your point, people between not being able to get outside much to outside being safer than indoors, the ability to be socially distanced on trails and in parks, um, and just the need to get out of your home Zoom environment, um, park use just has escalated and continues to. And to his credit, I know you do, didn't ask me, but to his credit, Andrew Cuomo in his latest budget has allocated another 400 million over the next four years to 440 million to um, build out more amenities for parks so that they can withstand the kind of heavy use that you've mentioned. Yeah, which I think will only continue to grow. The, uh, the younger generation likes uh, trails, likes um, that part of their life. Um, help me get this. I, I was just thinking about this while you were talking about the preservation of farmland. What was revealed recently in the newspaper about Bill Gates being something like the largest owner or preserver, I don't know, owner, owner of farmland? Yeah. So my understanding is that, um, and, and listen, I, I wouldn't take my word for it uh, on this, but as memory serves, 
his investment company started buying Midwestern and Western farmlands in the recession, Great Recession, when land prices plummeted. And so, you know, um, I think it was an investment play. But to his credit, I think he's also probably managing those lands well. Well, I, I think that this is this is the you know there's a delicate balance which which most people do not have patience for, which is that it's Microsoft. But part of telling the story of Bill Gates is what we were just discussing, which if you told people nothing else about Bill Gates and they didn't know what Microsoft was, they might say that's a great guy. Until you told them about the rest of the story, then you go, well, wait a minute. He's one of the tech giants. I'm not certain. Well, you know, but it, it's how they use their money. So um, this is an investment play, though, not a conservation play. Having said that, I think he'll manage the land well because his investment depends on it, long term investment. But just to be clear, he's done some wonderful things on on vaccines and medicines and climate. Um but I, I just don't know whether his ag investments has a green uh, end game to them. Uh, but I'm sure he's managing them well in terms of soil, pesticides, herbicides, um, all the inputs that aren't environmental friendly. Well, and if he isn't, I'm sure, Kim, it's someone like you and the fellow. He'll listen people. to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, I will make certain he does. Talk to me a little bit about open space and its relationship to climate change, because I'm not going to say that all of the listeners of this podcast understand the significance. And, you know, there was just an announcement this past week of General Motors saying that by 2030, 35, 35, 35, 35. Yep. yeah, that none of their, all their vehicles will be electric. So for those people that like driving big trucks, don't worry, they're going to still make big trucks, but they're going to make certain that they're electric. And so how does open space and climate change, how do we use them in, a, in the same paragraph, let's say? So there's something called nature-based nature based solutions or natural based solution, natural solutions, um, nature-based solutions. And actually, uh, in one of his executive orders, President Biden has announced climate 30 by 30. And in some respects, it's a very elegant combination. We are fundamentally facing two huge crises in this world. One is climate change, and the other is the loss of biodiversity. Um, I think everyone knows climate change and the world's warming up. Even today's snowstorm and the polar vortex that preceded it is only because it's warmer in the Arctic and that pushes cold air down on us poor suffering New Yorkers. Um, but, um, you know, I think sometimes people don't appreciate the loss of biodiversity and, and what that means. So let me just give you a couple of quick factoids. And sure, you know, yeah. absolutely hand signal if I go on too long, because it really is quite depressing. Well, but I also want to just back you up a bit when you say everyone knows about the impact of climate change. And I will say to you, eh, maybe, not. maybe not everyone, but all right, let's do biodiversity. We'll do biodiversity, then we'll go back to climate. Um, 
So um, a million species are at risk of extinction in the world. Um, worldwide, a third of the insect population, the, the insect population has decreased by a third in the last 40 years. The bird population in the United States has decreased by 30%. In the last 50 years, the population of African lions and African elephants have decreased by 90%. So 40 years ago, there were 400,000 lions in Africa. Now there are only 40,000 wild lions. The population of, of wild uh, tigers is now 3,500. Um, you just go, you know, there are 300 right whales left in the world. There are two northern white rhinoceros left in the world. I mean, it's just staggering, and you can go on and on. But, you know, a million species are at risk, and they're at risk um, fundamentally because of habitat loss or degraded habitat. And part of that is also they don't have corridors to go from, you know, mostly many of these animals are migratory. And if they don't have a migratory corridor because of railroads or cars or pipelines or houses, you know, they can't migrate. And then basically they starve to death um, because the migration was following food, following water. So um, the U.S., um, it was prompted by some U.S. scientists, um, thought that there should be this policy of what is known as 30 by 30. And it's basically been adopted worldwide, which is we should save 30% of the world by 2030. So in the next two to 10 years. So what does that look like? I'll get to that in a second. Um, so climate change, you know, we're throwing too much carbon in the atmosphere. You know, I forget the exact numbers, but, you know, pre-industrial, they're about 300 parts per million carbon in the atmosphere. And the Industrial Revolution comes, it's pumping more and more. Now we have about 450 million parts, um, parts per million of carbon. So that's a 50% increase. And there's a correlation between temperature and carbon in the atmosphere. So at this point, everyone acknowledges that, or most people acknowledge that they're whatever the source, everyone acknowledges whatever the source, there's a lot more carbon and there's a lot more warmth, right? 2020 was tied for the warmest year on record. And that produces severe storms. It produces, you know, things like Irene and, and severe storms were more frequent storms. You know, the Catskills in Sullivan County, where you live, I think they've had one 500 year storm and two 300-year storms and one 1,000-year storm all in the last 10 years, right? I mean, statistically, that's not supposed to happen. So um, uh, that's a consequence, you know, changing weather patterns, changing precipitation patterns, more severe storms, extreme cold, extreme warm, all that's climate change, right? So if you look at the ways you get carbon out of the atmosphere, reduce carbon, nature plays a role. And most scientists think roughly a third or a little bit more of the carbon can be extracted and absorbed out of the atmosphere through trees, through soil, and through the oceans. And of those three, forests are the greatest. About half of the carbon that's emitted every year is absorbed by trees. So, and, and intact forests, and ancient forests do a better job of that than new forests. 
for various reasons, which we can go into or not. You can ask me the question, but I won't go there now. So one of the things we've been trying to do is um, protect as many forests as we can through various tools. But to put forests in some kind of perspective, uh, basically a million acres of forest land is lost every year in the United States. That's the equivalent of a football field every 30 seconds or the state of Rhode Island every year in the United States is lost from forest production and degraded. And so the photosynthesis occurs. And so you have two concepts here. One is sequestration and the other is storage. So sequestration is the, what the plants take up in the moment, right? So in photosynthesis, when you have photosynthesis, that sequesters carbon and converts it into tree or roots, right? Or leaves. Mm -hmm. Storage is the sequestration that's built up over time. So a tree, once they've sequestered the carbon, stores the carbon. So think of sequestration as when you're making a deposit into a bank and storage is your savings account, right? So one of the things that happens when you cut a tree or cut a forest or the Arctic tundra thaws is you release the stored carbon into the atmosphere. So when you cut a tree down, it's not just that you're going to have less photosynthesis in the world. You're actually reducing, I mean, you're, you're, you are leaking carbon back in the atmosphere. So one of the approaches here is to try to preserve as many forest lands as we can. And that's what OSI has been trying to do for about 20 years. And so of our 2.3 million acres, about 2 million of it is forest. And it either takes the, the form of about 20% of it is parks and parkland, preserves, refuges, whatever you want to call it. And then the other 80% is what we call working forests, um, where we, we want to preserve jobs in the woods. So how do you do that? You know, if these communities in Maine or in the Adirondacks or in the Catskills were built upon people cutting trees. So we want to preserve that economy and preserve those, those communities. So if we buy basically the development rights, so people can't convert them to anything but trees, you know that you have a resource that's an economic foundation for the community. So we're trying to ensure that the industries and the communities and the individuals that the trees will be there in perpetuity for them to cut. Now, we may layer on the kind of cutting or you don't cut near a river because that's water quality or erosion or things like that. But the fundamental purpose of this is to try to lock up as many acres um, as possible that the local communities or industry can use. So let, let me, there was recently a piece on Sunday morning, which was discussed, what, what they did was they layered onto a map of the United States, the weather changes that were occurring in different parts. So California, they found some people to talk to that said, after how many years of fires, do we really want to keep living here? And then they went to rising sea levels in different parts of the United States and said, do you really want to live on a coastline? So then they came up with a four, they, they came up with 
here are the cities that you want to live in thinking about climate change. So it was Buffalo, Cleveland, and Madison basically kind of ringing the Great Lakes. Now, I might say that if you use that same calculus and then the world just changed because of remote work so that there's a certain percentage of people that can work from anywhere, do places like the Hudson Valley become attractive? Because yes, we do have some storms, but we don't have tornadoes, although we did have one touchdown in Newburgh but we don't really have tornadoes or fires or things like that. But I always am trying to find why people want to come to New York. And so can we market ourselves as a climate-friendly um, place to work provided that we're smart about where people locate? and the impact on the environment. There's a lot to unpackage there, but you know, I know your mission, so I'm not certain where you want to go with this, but. Well, 40% of the world's population lives within, I think, 12 miles of a coast, of a great lake or estuary or the oceans. And so a lot of them are going to be subject to displacement if the sea level rise really happens. Um, and of course, quite often it is the relatively disadvantaged who live in low-lying areas. But that's not really the, the, your, your question. There probably will be a migration from coastal cities inland. So if I had a choice of buying a home in the Hamptons or buying the home in the Hudson Valley, hands down the Hudson Valley, right? Right. Um, and then within the Hudson Valley, I mean, if you're really serious about this, you look at the local topography, right? If you are in, say, Garrison, and there's a lot of um, houses pretty close to the river, I think I'd rather be uh, in Poughkeepsie on the top of the hill than Garrison at the bottom of the hill. Well, the reason I'm, a I'm asking is I'm here with one of my favorite land preservationists, and I'm thinking about the recent, um, uh, you know, due to the pandemic, the number of people from New York City that are looking to live somewhere else. I hope we can capture them in New York State. So some are looking to the Hudson Valley. So is there an intelligent way that you would tell your friend Jonathan to say yes? But here's how you need to encourage it, because you, you, we don't want to interfere with the open space. So, you know, what's interesting about um, what you've seen in the pandemic. Well, let me go back. Um, you know, for a lot of my career, conservation was fighting developers. And um, that changed in 2008. because there was no more open space development. I mean, people wanted, the millennials didn't want to live there. There wasn't the money to finance open greenfield development. And while people have moved out of the city, they, there is no real demand for new housing. 
the demand is for turnkey housing. They aren't moving out of the city to spend a year building a house, right? They want that house tomorrow or yesterday, sorry. So I haven't, I mean, I think the real estate values in the Hudson Valley have gone up, but the raw land prices have not. Well, right. As the, I think the value has gone up partially because the supply is shrinking. And as you say, exactly. they want the house right now, so right. they're willing to pay more. Right. But in previous eras, that would have meant that the undeveloped land that developers could develop would also go up. And that hasn't happened. There's very little new home construction or development. So I think long term, if we can focus people's migration to the Hudson Valley for them to do what they are doing now, right? Infill, buying older houses and maybe renovating them, you know, basically using existing and quite often quite lovely historic housing stock, that would be a great outcome. Um, and, but having said that, I was, I, I have four kids in the twenties and I was talking to some of my college friends just last night about their kids, our kids all want to live in the city. I think this is a little bit of a temporary aberration about this ex-migration from urban areas. I think they'll be they'll return. Unlike you, they'll return to Brooklyn as opposed to leave Brooklyn. But um, that would be Queens. Think, but okay. <laughs> I also think there'll be a a people will also stay in a lot of the Hudson Valley that they've moved. I think both are true. Right. I think the cities will come back perhaps a little bit sooner than the three or five years they're talking about. But I also think the population that has come back to the Hudson Valley or has come to the Hudson Valley, many of them will stay. And I think, you know, what's really interesting is if you look at the long term cycle of the Catskills, or the Adirondacks, they've lost the younger generation. They've left the Catskill city towns and they've left the Adirondacks. And this may be an opportunity to repopulate those places with um, residents and people who are committed to the future, which I think would be a really, really wonderful outcome for the more remote villages and towns in the Hudson Valley in New York. I think we're going to leave it there because I think that's that's some sage-like advice from a good friend about how to do this and do it appropriately. Kim, thank you for your time. Jonathan, it's always a pleasure. And soon again, I hope. Thank you for tuning in to Patterns and Paradigms, the Pattern Podcast. For more information about this episode, visit our website, patternforprogress.org forward slash podcast.